It is a cornerstone of democracy, central to living in an open and fair society. The ability to say what you think, to believe what you want, to discuss, protest, publish and demand a better world, all are vital means of holding the powerful to account. As the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression and Opinion, it is Irene Khan's job to uphold this fundamental human right. The first woman appointed to the position and a veteran campaigner for human rights, Khan's qualifications include serving for almost a decade at the turn of the century as Secretary General of Amnesty International. As wars raged in Iraq and Afghanistan, she led a campaign to shut down the United States Guantanamo Bay detention facility that held suspected enemy combatants, many without charge or trial. Khan fought to end violence against women and launched Amnesty's Demand Dignity campaign against human rights abuses that impoverish people and keep them poor. Across the globe now, even in advanced democracies, the freedom of expression and opinion is under attack. Wars continue to rage, repressive regimes seem only to grow stronger and journalists have become targets. Censorship and intimidation inhibit the free flow of information. In recognition of these challenges, the United Nations established the Special Rapporteur's mandate in 1993 to promote and protect the right to speak freely without fear of retaliation. But who will heed its call and how relevant is the United Nations itself in a violent world? Irene Khan, the UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression and Opinion, talks to Al Jazeera. Irene Khan, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. It, it occurred to me, preparing this interview, that your brief is so broad, it covers what people should be free to say, to think, to believe, in everything from mature democracies to repressive regimes to countries at war to uh, the internet, the media, gender issues. How on earth do you stay on top of it? You must be pulled in a hundred different directions at once. Well, freedom of opinion and expression, I call it the bridging right because it bridges all other rights that we enjoy, whether it's the right to education, whether it's the right to vote, whether it's the right to environment. You need information, access to information. You need to be able to express your views. You need to be able to participate in decisions that affect your life. So it is indeed a broad uh, right, but of course, as an individual mandate holder, I have to prioritize and I have to prioritize on key issues, fundamental issues like uh, democratic elections, like uh, media freedom and safety of journalists, like the right of women uh, to speak freely. I am the first woman to hold this mandate yes. in the UN. So these are uh, key issues of the day. If you were to boil it down to one sort of essential purpose, essential ingredient, what would it be, your job? My job is to monitor, report, uh, draw, uh, listen to people's voices and carry them to member states of the UN and to other key stakeholders about the importance of freedom of expression for development, democracy and human dignity. Let's start here in Bangladesh. This is your country of birth. It's where you live most of the time. It's just come through an election. 
hardly an election at all, really. Only one side took part, the government side. The opposition boycotted it, the BNP, saying that thousands, they say tens of thousands of their supporters, including local leaders, are in jail. The government seems here to have whittled down democracy into something like a piece of theatre, and not a very convincing piece of theatre at that. Is this troubling for you? Well, it's very, very painful. You know, I was a teenager here in 1971 during the war, and I saw people fighting for freedom, uh, ordinary people who laid their lives on the line. Uh, there was no question there uh, that we were fighting for freedom. To see today uh, people's freedom being stifled in this way is extremely painful, very distressful uh, for uh, the democracy here. Uh, and it's not only the polls. You know, the polls are culmination of a process. Uh, you talked about what was very visible. What is less visible but deeply troubling to democracy is the institutional capture from the judiciary, uh, law enforcement, to the human rights in uh, uh, institutions in the country, to other institutions, uh, all of that coming in the control of the ruling party. Uh, ordinary people, these voices are not being heard. Media is being suppressed. There was uh, the Digital Security Act, uh, but now there is a Cyber Security Act, which is just another name for the same legislation that has chilled freedom of expression, a locked up journalists. Some of them have died in prison. So it's a very repressive environment in which we are living. There are today. some words for that, aren't there? Autocracy is one. One party state is another. Do you go that far? Well, I am very troubled by what I call the backsliding of emerging democracies. And that is happening here. Authoritarianism is rising. Um, to my uh, knowledge, experience around the world shows that if you want to sustain development, then you must have space for debate, for diverse sources of information, for discussion. It worries me very much. There's been development in this country, but can it be sustained in this repressive environment? Well, let's, uh, let, let's talk about an issue that brings together repression uh, and freedom of expression in this country, and that is the case of double Nobel Prize winner Mohammed Yunus, uh, known as the banker to the poor. Uh, he's currently sentenced. He has a jail sentence over his head. He's out on bail. You've been pretty closely following that case. You were there for the verdict. You called it a travesty of justice. Indeed, and it is, um, given uh, the, um, the number of uh, labor uh, law violations that are taking place in the country, the enormous health and safety problems uh, that uh, laborers face every day in factories, uh, the way in which uh, big business is uh, exploiting labor, given all that, it is amazing that the government chooses to pursue this case against Professor Yunus on a technical issue that from what I can see, from my discussions with his lawyer and other lawyers, uh, would not stand uh, in a free, independent uh, judicial system. Something that feels or seems rather like a personal vendetta between Sheikh Hasina well, and Mr. Yunus. Uh, Professor Yunus has been vilified by the Prime Minister as the bloodsucker of the poor. Um, he has been uh, called many names. Uh, there is, of course, a long uh, history going back to the time when he uh, wanted to enter politics, but immediately, almost immediately decided not to. That uh, goes back more than a decade. Um, and uh, some, yes, some people do say 
that there is a, a sense of uh, vendetta here, but I think it's very, very dangerous. I, I, and, and, and there's another message that's going out to civil society, to anyone who dares to stand up, speak out, that if this can happen to Professor Yunus, what can happen to others? Right, 170 global figures uh, wrote to Sheikh Hasina in August, demanding that what they said was his continuous judicial harassment stop among them, US Secretary of State, former uh, Hillary Clinton, Richard Branson, the Virgin founder, Bono, the singer. Is she interested? Does she care what people like that think? Well, the Prime Minister and her government, the ministers, uh, always speak about the image of the country. Uh, they talk about others tarnishing that image. I think in this particular case, uh, the tarnishing might be uh, is ha happening by, by them themselves. Well, let's turn now to another very high-profile case, and perhaps an unusual chink of light, the case of, I hope you'll forgive me for saying so, your friend, I believe she's your friend Maria Ressa in the Philippines, who has finally been acquitted on charges of tax evasion. She too hounded by the courts. It took a change of government in the Philippines, didn't it? Uh, I think what that indicates, uh, several things. One is uh, the importance of journalists in today's world and media fr uh, freedom. She's a Nobel uh, Peace Prize winner too. Uh, secondly, the realization by the country, by the judiciary of the country, that uh, you have to uphold the rule of law. At the end of the day, the rule of law is absolutely essential in, in democracies for their survival. And thirdly, the political realization of the government of the day that hounding Maria Ressa will not take them anywhere. It's likely only uh, to create more problems. And I'm glad that they have woken up to that reality and that, that the courts have uh, upheld the rule of law and uh, human rights. No such luck in Russia, though. Another case that you've been outspoken about, that of Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader, who remains resolutely locked up uh, somewhere in deep Siberia. And frankly, no chance, no obvious chance of that change. Unfortunately, uh, uh, his case is getting more and more complicated now because his, his other charges have been brought against him. His imprisonment has been lengthened. Now he's up in the Arctic, uh, uh, close to the Arctic Circle. Um, and it's a very sad uh, situation. And of course, overall in Russia, there is no independent media. There is no room for any criticism, any dissent. Um, and it is indeed a, a very, very difficult situation there. Um, and I have written um, to the Russian government. I can, we continue to push. Russia is a member state of the United Nations. Russia is an observer in the Human Rights Council. It has obligations. And we will keep pushing. Uh, for for uh, justice for, for Navalny. Do you get any response? Yes, I do. Sometimes I do. Sometimes on Twitter, uh, from the permanent representative of Geneva, who calls uh, what we are saying to be lies. And my answer to him is, if we are lying, if the facts are not straight, just let us in the country. Let us come and see what's happening. And I have not got a reply from him on, on that. We're living through what looks rather grimly like a new age of conflict. Wars in Ukraine, in Europe, uh, the threat of war in the Red Sea, in the South China Sea, Taiwan, Myanmar, Sudan, and of course Israel, Hamas, and the appalling destruction of Gaza. Uh, and that war, especially in Gaza right now, and the occupied West Bank, West Bank looks increasingly like a sort of green light to attack, to take out voices of the media, of journalism. Why is that so important in war? Well, I think journalists play an absolutely critical role, 
at all times, but certainly in the middle of conflict, uh, as important as health workers or um, uh, other emergency workers because they are bringing the information to the world. They are holding the truth. Um, they're holding to account the parties to the conflict in a way through their information, and therefore they're seen as a threat. Now, civilian, uh, journalists are civilians. They need protection. But in my view, they're a particular kind of civilian in a war situation. They can't drop their job and, and cross the border and go away. They cannot seek refuge elsewhere. They have to be there. And therefore, they need more protection under international humanitarian law than they're receiving right now. And parties, member parties to the conflict, particularly governments, when, when states are fighting the war, such as the Israeli Defense Force, have to... Uh, take extra care, which they are not. In fact, there are uh, allegations that journalists are being targeted, deliberately targeted. Mm. Uh, Al Jazeera journalists, as you know, That's have right. taken uh, a big hit here. Uh, I've written to the Israeli government. I'm not sure whether they will bother to answer me, but I do want, and I have called on the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court to pay particular attention to the plight of journalists. But let me add one other point. You know, killing journalists is, of course, the fastest, most obvious, the crudest way of censoring speech and chilling speech. But there are other new forms of repression that are coming now. And one is um, what I call the weaponization of the law against journalists. Um, and we see that in this country, for example, with the cybersecurity law, uh, with other kinds of harassment, tax laws against Maria Ressa, as you pointed out. So journalists are being hit in various ways, the uh, defamation, criminal libel is used against mm. many um, to chill speech. It shows actually how powerful, what a powerful role you play as journalists. You are holding to account. You are speaking truth to power. Sure. Well, well there's another aspect uh, that I want to bring up about the way that wars are waged and the way that wars affect societies not just the silencing of the, spe the speech and, uh, and the ability of journalists to report, but the silencing of cultural society that is so insidious that it reduces a society to its knees. I'm talking about Gaza again because it's a prime example. I'm talking about the wiping out of artists, of writers, of poets, of performers, of cultural heritage, the sorts of things by which people judge their identity. Yes, indeed, that is the big tragedy of Gaza. And uh, as you may know, I and my uh, fellow special rapporteurs have actually called for an investigation in the genocide. We believe this is genocide, not just cultural genocide, but actual genocide, wiping out a people. The threat of displacement, of uprooting people, pushing them out. It's not just people fleeing conflict. There is deliberate uh, sort of push to get people out to grab the land. Um, this is a, a classic case of uh, colonial occupation that is taking place in Gaza. And along with that, of course, the culture, the history, the language, uh, the traditions are, 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 are uprooted. We have seen that uh, with the Rohingyas in Myanmar. We now see that happening in Gaza. And that is where I feel the hypocrisy of those who champion human rights have to be brought to light as well along with those who commit human rights violations. Uh, many of those human rights champions are silent or standing on the sidelines where, while Gaza is being, uh, the Gazans are being obliterated. That, that's a very bold statement. Yes. You believe that this is genocide. 
Does well, the weight of the UN sit behind that, Billy? Uh, well, we as special rapporteurs, I, as a special rapporteur on the occupied territories and others, have called it genocide in the making. We haven't been on the ground. Uh, in, obviously, evidence that we are seeing is uh, evidence collected by journalists and others. There needs to be a full investigation. Let's move on to another area that sits squarely within your brief, no less thorny than the others, gender. Um, you have a focus on the protection of women's rights, of course, but gender is an emerging battlefield, isn't it, in terms of changing notions of gender, what gender even means. How much of your time is taken up protecting the rights of gender? Well, you know, as I said, I'm the first woman to hold this mandate, and one of the first things I did was to look at whether there had been any reports in the UN system about freedom of expression from the perspective of gender, and I discovered there hadn't been one. And my first report to the UN General Assembly was about uh, gender equality and freedom of expression. And I define gender not only as women and girls, but also other genders, um, uh, LGBTQI uh, people, and discovered that if you put a gender lens, freedom of expression seems gender neutral. But if you put on a gender lens, uh, then censorship for women doesn't only come through law. Very, of, very often it does not come through law. It comes from culture, custom, tradition, uh, and, and many other uh, social um, uh, norms, uh, that cultural norms that stop women from saying something, doing something, and so on. Look at Iran. Look at what has happened uh, in, with Iran in the context of uh, women's hijab. What a woman wears becomes a political issue, becomes a national security issue. Um, how women express themselves through how they dress, how they speak, where they go, participation in elections. My research has shown that women politicians tend to face a higher level of smear campaigns, attacks, especially now with digital technology, because they are women. Attacks against them are sexualized. We as special rapporteurs have faced uh, similar attacks as, as well. What about the internet? Another field. Uh, which is also fast changing, a frontier along which issues of expression are, have long been drawn and battled over, but now artificial intelligence brings an entirely new dimension to the game in which very often expression, thought, even opinion is going to be generated by machines. How will you in your role adapt to that? Well, digital technology has, has changed, I think, the uh, entire sort of landscape uh, for freedom of expression. There is no aspect of freedom of expression that you can talk about today where digital technology does not play a role. But let's first begin with the inequality uh, with regard to access to internet. Uh, many parts of the world uh, do not have universal access. There is no universal access, and especially those who need to have access to information, like again, women, girls, minority communities and others, um, are, are the ones that suffer most. Uh, so, and they are also the groups that are attacked most. There's more hate speech against those categories of people, for instance, on the, online, and yet their ability to master the internet, to be literate, to, have to be digitally literate, uh, to even have access to the internet is missing. And then, of course, you have social media, you have big companies that are dominating this area and uh, where um, commercial interests are, are have, uh, dominate over uh, the values of human rights. We've seen that with disinformation, for example, including in elections uh, or in other fields. 
Uh, it's a very, very complex area. It, but I caution governments with how to regulate that area because governments have a vested interest from my perspective. And it's very, and, and many governments, I, I find, are very interested in restricting the internet to their interest, restricting critical speech against them. I believe that disinformation, which is a major problem now, as you know, disinformation, uh, the best um, way of um, addressing disinformation is actually through fact-checking. And independent media is your best fact-checker. Governments need to, to be robust in putting out factually correct information, but governments need to stop spreading disinformation. So on the one hand, digital technology has empowered people. We have access to more sources of information than other. It's created new inequalities for those who cannot access digital technology. And it has created new uh, challenges and threats uh, with, uh, I think, uh, governments and others not really knowing how to control uh, 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 speech, how to ensure uh, that hate speech is uh, prohibited and removed but at the same time, people are free to exchange diverse ideas. So it's a big threat. We're in a year now, 2024, yeah. when all of this stuff is going to be of absolutely prime importance, when the flow of disinformation arguably will reach its historic kind of zenith. A year of elections unprecedented across the globe. Half of the world's population in 65 countries will vote in a number of those countries began here in, in Bangladesh, democracy will be tested almost to breaking point. Now, it's a broad question, but let me ask you off the top of your head, which countries you will be particularly watching closely this year? Well, for me, uh, the biggest threat to freedom of expression today is the backsliding of democracies. And therefore, I want to focus on my own country, of course, Bangladesh, but India, Mexico uh, comes up in June, and the US in November. For me, those three countries, how they handle their elections, how freedom of expression emerges or is restricted in those countries, I think will determine uh, the flow of, uh, or, or the respect for this right. But in, break it down for me, why those three? 900 million voters yes. going to the polls in India, yes. a country that is... Absolutely. And India uh, is the world's largest democracy. Mm, mm. US is the world's oldest democracy. Mm. Mexico plays an enormously important role in that region as having been the leader on many human rights issues internationally, for example, on the gender issue. But internally, it has had a populist regime uh, which has chosen to suppress uh, uh, freedom of expression, chosen to attack journalists. Uh, and Mexico, without being a country of conflict, is one of the countries with the highest number of uh, killings of journalists every year. Mm -hmm. So these three countries, for me, are kind of emblematic of the problem uh, we have in the world today with freedom of expression, absolutely essential for democracy, and yet at risk. Do you feel that by the end of this year, democracy will have survived, won out? or that the question mark hanging over it globally will have only become more severe? Well, I think the demos, we need to think of the demos, the people. And you go back, you know, to Greek uh, times, uh, Greek civilization and how democracy started there, how it has evolved over the centuries, millennia, in fact, 
Uh, I think democracy lives in the hearts of people. In this country, in my own country, I've seen poor people who have understood the value of their vote in a way in which a lot of uh, educated uh, electorate doesn't understand. So I believe people uh, have uh, a demand for freedom that will not, cannot be suppressed by any government at the end of the day. In the end, the inevitable charge that will be leveled at you in some quarters is that, you know, you can shout as loudly as you like about human rights, but in places where human rights really matter and where change is most needed, very often those are places that have simply gone too far beyond the reach of UN-style norms and expectations that they're just not going to be listening to you and you can't make them listen. How do you go about ensuring that what you do matters? I think it is about, first of all, uh, understanding that people have a thirst for justice and human rights are, the, are a manifestation of justice. I think human rights uh, have proven itself over the centuries to be not just the right thing, but the wise thing to do. You cannot sustain development without transformational change. And you cannot bring about transformational change to create just equal societies without respect for human rights. Think international solidarity is what we need. We need much more international solidarity among peoples. And thankfully here, the internet has created an enormous opportunity. So I'm actually optimist. Despite everything that I've said so far, I'm optimistic about the future. Irene Khan. UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression and Opinion. A wonderful discussion. Thank you for talking to our visit. Thank you very much for inviting me.